Welcome to Financially Ever After, where award-winning and nationally recognized financial expert Stacy Francis will bring you savvy tips and words of wisdom on how to secure your financial future before, during, and after divorce. For 30 minutes every other week, you'll hear personal stories from women who have either faced or are currently facing this transition. In addition, you'll also soak up knowledge and inspiration from the industry's top legal, financial, residential, and mental health professionals. And now here's our host, Stacy Francis. So welcome to Financially Ever After, a podcast coming to you every other week, giving you smart information, great details, all the things you need to know about making good decisions about your money, both during and after divorce. We bring to you wonderful guests, and that is true of this week as well. We have Patricia First, who is a graduate of the New York University and New York Law School, and was admitted to the practice of law in the state of New York and the southern and eastern districts of the United States federal courts in 1994. She started the Patricia Ann First Family Law Center in 1994 and worked there until 2011 when she brought in a partner and formed First Petitti LLC. At the two firms, she has handled and successfully completed thousands of cases involving families caught in the turmoil of family law conflicts. Pat was selected as the New York super lawyer, and she's been on the list five years in a row and was appointed by the chief administrative judge to serve on the New York State Judicial Committee on Women in the Courts. She was also the recipient of the 2015 Hannah S. Cohen Pro Bono Award for from the Women's Bar Association and the state of New York for her work in co-founding the Matrimonial Pro Bono Project in the New York and Kings County area. So with that, quite a bio, you have done a lot and you've been doing this for many years. So we're so excited to have you here to hear about your insight, your experience and um, all the stories I know you, you have to tell. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for allowing me to uh, to come on the podcast and hopefully offer your listeners some uh, helpful information. Nice. And you've you know you've worked in this area for many years. Is this something that you always thought that you would go into, or did you have a path that zigged and zagged and um, ended up bringing you to more of the matrimonial law area? I did. I. Um, well, for some of your viewers, this may be, or listeners rather, not viewers, may be of some interest. I um, dropped out of college at age 19, and I miraculously was able to work my way up also at age 19 to um, be a buyer in a retail store. And I'm going to keep this relatively quick. That got me from the town or city, I guess, of Worcester, Massachusetts, to Boston and from Boston to New York. And at a certain point, I think in the early 80s, I formed my own business and was very successful um, very quickly, financially successful. But again, I had not gotten a college degree 
And I didn't really think at the end of my life, I wanted the measure of my life to be how many earrings I had sold, which was the business I was in. And so I went back to school. And so as you already gave my bio, I went, I went to night school, um, both as an undergrad and then as a law student. And while I was a law student, I had an interest in two real areas of, of, of existence, psychology and um, solving problems. And so that seemed to merge in the area of family law. And so I did an internship um, actually with a law firm in California who worked with poor families and they were they were highlighted on 60 Minutes, which is how I learned of them. And I was lucky enough to be able to work with them and lucky enough to be able to adjust my business so that I could be in California. And from there I formed my own practice, which in retrospect was scary as hell. Yeah. Very scary. Um, but I, you know, I leaned on people I met and knew and they were all helpful and I kind of lived with the mantra, first do no harm. So if I wouldn't, if, if the situation was so bad that I couldn't make it worse, mm -hmm. um, then I would do it. And that's really, I learned on the job. Um, and I also had students who worked with me who were able to do a lot of the research and other things. And that's essentially how I started. Your story is really powerful because there are so many women that uh, want to be business owners, uh, so many women that want to be entrepreneurs, but um, don't don't really know how to start. And you've made it happen. You know, you've made it happen um, one foot in front of the other. And, you know, a lot of women who are coming out of divorce are finding themselves needing to launch back into the workforce. Um, and as far as small businesses, um, women start small businesses, typically um, twice as many women than men. So it's a fantastic area, but it's just a mat, you know, getting your, your resources in order, getting the data and being able to make good decisions and, um, you know, essentially one foot in front of the other. And so how did going from California um, from there, how did you get back to here in New York? Well, I was still a law student and I was a law student in New York and I lived in New York. So I, I was, you know, sometimes the, the, the gods are with you. Um, I had a friend who lived, happened to live near the law firm in LA. And I was able, because at the time I was in sales, um, I was I had my own company and I was essentially selling costume jewelry, I was able to arrange the schedule um, so that I flew back and forth from California to New York during this particular summer. So wow. I could so I could do the um, internship. I would like to say, with regard to starting one's own business, I started with no money, and that includes every business that I have been in. I, I literally, um, I relied on contacts, for instance, for the law firm in that, at that time in 94, we still had law books, and they were somehow, somebody had closed a practice and they donated the law books. Wow. A, a congressman had 
I think died and his office furniture all became available, which is how I got my original office furniture. Um, my office, my first office was in fact a storefront um, on Stanton Street um, and it was the rent was like $400. So, and then I just reached out to various people that I met um, through being in law school, through meeting other lawyers who worked in in this area and, and, and from there built a practice. It's, it's not hard, I will say this, it's not hard to get clients when um, you charge low rates and are willing to work extremely hard. It's, it's a lot harder to build a practice that works with people of means mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, who have many choices. Yeah, so exactly. There's there's a big difference. But I gained tremendous experience on those early cases where the people had no no real money and were really appreciative of the yeah. work. So that's phenomenal. And I think it goes to show the excuse of not having enough money to start a business is just that it can be done. Also, I I would say that, you know, people have different attitudes about the retail business, and that is where I started. Mm -hmm. And again, without any education, just hard work, Mm -hmm. was able to work my way up. Um, And there were some lucky things that happened that helped me. Um, But it it really was working my way up and then the contacts and in the industry and enabled the moves from one job to a bigger job to a bigger job and then to switch from being in retail to wholesale again without any money no money was just able to switch into really a career that gave me more control and that's how I was able to go back to school by being in my own business I could free up my time to go back to school so that's the story that is a really powerful inspirational story and I'm glad that you shared that and fast forwarding to today you know a couple decades later um, your own matrimonial practice and working with men and women is there a certain way that you you work with women, or do you have any thoughts about um, you know how you can work best with with women as a matrimonial lawyer? I think the first thing that I like, you know, one of the one of the things is obviously the the client is or the potential client is interviewing me, and I'm interviewing them, so. I do like to listen and allow them to tell me their story in their words. Mm-hmm. I, I also know, though, that I have to sort of guide the, the, the interview so that the information that's relevant to what I might be able to do to help them comes out. Yeah. But, but I think really listening um, and hearing them um, and then asking some questions that are responsive to what they've said is the most important thing that I can do. And then, you know, again, I like to offer practical solutions sometimes to help people maybe who are not going to retain me or not going to even go forward with a divorce, but some practical solutions that might help them in their marriage or in whatever problem they've expressed. Yeah. 
Yeah. And yes, more with women than necessarily with men, mm-hmm. um, I, I would say. And how do you get a sense of where they are financially? Because a, a lot of the women that we work with, um, this is the area that they feel least comfortable and often have the um, not as much information about as, as would is, is really needed. Well, um, one is probably the easiest way is sort of the standard of living kind of question. So mm-hmm. where they live, whether they own or rent, mm-hmm. whether there's a summer home or no summer home, or, or just what they do during their vacations, where they work, um, what they know about their partner's income mm-hmm. um, or lack of income, and what obviously we hope they know their own income. Um, and then if they know about anything else, but essentially it starts with the standard of living. Um, and then from there, um, I can kind of begin to piece together what the financial situation of this family is, sometimes negatively, but yeah. sometimes positively. And I think what's interesting, the way that you're talking about it is approaching at it from a I don't know if this is the right word, but almost like a more gentle approach because some individuals I think are intimidated by coming to um, an attorney's office because they don't have account statements. But the way that you're approaching it is something that I've, I've not heard before of almost um, just, you know, how do you live your life? What does that look like? Do you take uh, economy? Uh, do you take business? Right. Do you take first class? I asked that question once and, um, my client responded that she has her own jet, and that was really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Pat, it kind of put me in. Okay, yeah. well, that, this is good for us. Good for us to know. And, um, but that's a really not you know not intimidating way to start to piece together where she's at and not making her feel stupid or judged or lack of um, because she doesn't necessarily know all the details of every single number and every single account. Well, I don't. I- You know, I don't necessarily initially want to know that, and I certainly don't want people to feel like they have to come prepared with 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 filing boxes, right, or a dossier. In fact, I'm a little suspect of people who do come in with that because it suggests they have an agenda. Um, And I I really rather someone come in in a sort of open way. It also, I think I learned many people will come, women in particular, I guess, who believe that there's money hidden somewhere. There's money out there, there's a lot of money, I don't know where it is, blah, blah, blah. And so one of the ways that I began um, figuring out what I could do is not to disbelieve them or to think... um, Okay, this isn't exactly adding up, but to really back into it from how much this family spent, and if you kind of are seeing the expenses equal the income, there is not a lot of money left over that could have been hidden. Exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of how I got to it, was trying to analyze 
whether, and in some cases I, I do want to say there is money that exists and was hidden or is hidden and it needs to be found and I'm more than happy to go on that adventure, but I don't want to mislead someone into yeah. thinking or to spend their good money. You know, these searches are expensive. expensive. Mm-hmm. Very expensive. And so I want to make sure that if I'm going on the hunt, I'm going to find, you know. Something. Yeah. yeah. For them. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the way that the way that you approach it is, um, you know, very intuitive, right? Income minus expenses equals zero, <laughs> right? Um, kind of, yeah, kind of answers your, answers your question right. and at least gives you a little bit more information of making a decision of do you really want to do this and you know, potentially throw, um, you know, good money after, after bad. So, um, now a lot of women are eligible for spousal support. Um, so let's talk about that because there's also been, you know, changes over the years. Um, I feel like this is one of the more controversial topics about, uh, the changes uh, to spousal support laws in New York State and whether or not that was a pro or a con for women. Um, and then also, what should women think about? Um, you know, the the years of lifetime maintenance uh, are gone. I don't know if they ever really were here. But um, for a woman who's considering to get a divorce, you know, how much time does she have to get back on her feet before she's going to need to be 100% dependent on her own income? So there's a little history here on on this topic that I'll share. So first, I'd like to say that the committee that I'm on with Women in the Courts, which is chaired by Justice Betty Ellerin, um, who is wonderful, and she felt that the modification to the maintenance laws or spousal support or alimony, all the same thing. Um, Most recent laws are draconian and hurt women. And she proceeded to endorse and, and work on creating a survey for, um, again, this is people who work in the courts I don't work Mm -hmm. in the courts. I'm honored to be on the committee, but everyone else on the committee is in the court system, judges and so on. So the results, there were many questions about what people thought about the spousal support laws. And I think Judge Ellerin expected it to come back um, with more negative. Mm -hmm. And it did not. So, and I'm not sure that it didn't because people who work in a system learn to sort of live with the system and kind of, you know, this is how it is. This is what it is, and so just deal with it. So, before the first sort of set of spousal support laws were modified, which I think now was in 2010, the group of people that went upstate to lobby, and I know this from some of the ones who went, um, were mostly lawyers that represented the very poor. And their issue was 
And it was true that most courts, judges, if there were children, would order child support. But if the income was like 80000 and the mother or wife didn't work, they'd say, oh, there's no money here for spousal support, and they wouldn't order it. So they hmm. went with that sort of idea in mind. There were mostly many lawyers who worked for not-for-profits to get some statutory language, some formula like there was for child support for these women. And when they were asked by whoever was the chair of the Senate Judiciary New York State Committee um, what they thought the cap should be, they threw out the number of $500,000 and nobody objected, so that became the number. And that number brought all of the lawyers that work with higher income people down on this plan and a new committee was formed chaired by Judge Sunshine who's now the chief matrimonial judge in the state of New York um, to come up with a new plan and so the current cap is $184,000 now I'm sure it's no surprise that spousal support when there's millions, billions, now we don't have millionaires, we have billionaires, um, when there's that kind of money, it's really not an issue. It is a big issue if you have families that are living in New York with private school children with perhaps incomes of 400,000 to let's say a million, um, it is a huge issue in that yep. sort of range. And Pat, just for our listeners, um, the cap is essentially that cap that you can use of income for calculating what spousal support or alimony, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. is is payable. And so the challenge that you're talking about is is almost that middle that middle class. And I know I'm from Michigan, so anyone outside of New York, um, you can judge me, you can, you know, throw darts at me. But in New York, that, you know, $400,000 income to a million dollar income, the way you feel, you may not be actually realistically um, middle class, but the way you feel and the decisions you make often are um, more the decisions of what we would consider um, middle class. Money is very tight. Of course, there's food on the table, but the cost of living in New York, especially as you talk about, Pat, if you're throwing in private school, um, you're, you're often looking at no money left over at the end of the year after taxes and expenses and all of this. Stacy's 100% right, and I know it to people outside of, in particular, Manhattan and Brooklyn, frankly. Uh, it sounds outrageous, but $400,000 income here, and if that's the only income, is really insufficient. And our judges know it, but yeah. herein lies the rub. So the, the, the spousal support cap is on income up to 184000 And the problem in terms of support, especially for the non-working, usually the wife, Um, person is that that cap is going to give them a really insufficient amount of money to support themselves in Manhattan and and so the sort of how this then gets manipulated and it does is that well the kids are going to continue in the private school that's a net after tax 
I won't get into the change in yeah. the tax laws um, in 2017, 2018. Um, but that's that's a that's an after-tax figure in New York. Private schools are roughly 45,000 per child. Um, so that you know is going to get paid by the working. Parent. spouse or parent mm -hmm. and so you start netting down and there's very little money left for support of the wife we we really we minimize it and we don't value it and and it's it is really a problem on the other hand if you're in you know two houses don't live as well or as cheaply as one they just do not and that becomes a bigger problem when we start to get into geographies and joint custody arrangement because then maybe one parent can afford to live in Manhattan but the other parent cannot mm -hmm. and for those of you who are not here the geography and travel from the Bronx or Staten Island or places in Brooklyn to Manhattan and vice versa crisscrossing is not particularly quick yeah. and can be over an hour yeah. um, for, one for 10 way. miles yeah or 10 or 15 miles it's crazy so the, yeah. I, the idea of you know two parents in the same sort of community kids going back and forth you know sort of open door policy is really not possible on these middle income yeah. cases so yeah. lots of money then it's a mad you know it's I'll use the example of you know Jeff and Mackenzie Bezos the question there is how many billions is exactly. she going to get it is not going to be a problem for her standard of living yeah not at all yeah but when we deal with real people and real numbers even when those numbers are a million dollars um, and they have families it is a problem yeah it is and you know I think that people don't realize that this income cap 140,000 you know <clears throat> it's actually 184 for maintenance and one currently it'll change yeah but it's currently 184 184,000 for spousal support and 148,000 for child support. Yeah. So those are the current ones, but they they do go up, but somewhat. Yeah. By example, the last cap for maintenance was 178. The last cap for child support was 144. Yeah, so every year coming up. Or yeah. So a woman listening to this right now, Pat, um, married to her husband. Let's say he's making um, a million well above both the child support and the the maintenance cap what are her chances of getting the cap waived um what what will you know i i i'm asking a difficult question because we can't really quantify those chances but there are cases where because of uh because of you know the the large earnings of one of the spouses um, the cap is waived and the entire amount or e even a higher amount above the cap is considered to be used for spousal support or, or eligible for child support. So there are factors that allow for um, the cap to be waived and for maintenance to be much greater than the formula would allow. But frankly, the, the biggest factor is the amount of money and what that particular family's expenses and li you know living expenses are yeah. so 
you know, we have in our courts uh, people who argue for, you know, my living expenses are $100,000 a month and that's what I need. And that is probably true and probably realistic, but for the most part, most people's living expenses are not that high, but they're high enough. And so, you know, even a, a, a family, it's minimally like $15,000 a month, not including private schools and so on, but just with, you know, things like rent or mortgages or maintenance fees we have here in New York where you're paying a mortgage and essentially rent um, mm-hmm. to live in an apartment. Um, so the, this, the monies that people make and how it is spent here is really a close generally a close to the line yeah living and there's not a lot outside of that other than an apartment or maybe some retirement benefits and pat we just scared every single person who's listening to this doesn't live in manhattan that is they are not coming here (laughs) because you know but i it's interesting i mean you're right it's fifteen thousand a month you think back where i grew up in michigan um you know if if we were to be spending that we, I mean, you were rich. We were, we would have, I mean, been what we thought gajillionaires um, and the type of lifestyle you could have on that. Right. But here, um, you know, you're still clipping coupons and, you know, doing all the, the things that, you know, I grew up in the mid- Midwest learning to do. Um, so as far as for women trying to um, kind of assess this, it's it's looking at all those factors then of whether or not sh- that, that, that limit will be raised of what are their expenses? Are there special need children? Um, you know, how much in assets is she going to receive and how much in income can she expect to, to um, have produced from that beautiful portfolio? So all these issues, it's not really clear cut, but can you talk a little bit about the formula specifically for duration, the length of time that she might be eligible? Because that's a piece too, for her being able to plan you know, kind of being able to plan, um, you know, how many years do I have before I need to be out there earning my own income? Or, um, you know, how many years do I have before I have to start really tapping my portfolio? So the duration used to be sort of a rule of thumb that was roughly 50% the length of the marriage. So if you're married five years, you could expect to be getting two and a half years of spousal support. Very rough formula, but that was essentially it. I have to say, I liked that rule of thumb. (laughs) I did too. It was easy and and of course deviations, but it was understandable and yeah. So now they have they have they're not rules meaning they're not mandatory they're they're strictly guidelines but now it's a lot less mm-hmm. so for marriages up to 5 years yeah. it's like 15 to 35% and then the longer the marriage it gets higher but the highest it gets to is 25 year marriage 50% so if you are married a long time you can expect or the guidelines will suggest a duration for maintenance however there's a rub there too because if you've been married 25 years you're probably you know older and then and then they start to courts start to factor in well you know 
when can this person retire and yeah. they can't be paying maintenance out of, you know, they have a right to not work. Do they have to work till they're 80? And it starts to, you know, whittle down in the last years. So yeah. it's not a, a clear, you're going to get maintenance, you know, for half, 12 and a half years and it's going to be this amount or, or whatever. Yeah. So it, it, it is, you know, I have to say, and women, you know, I once said, I don't know to whom, frankly, but there's no security without financial security. And you have to find ways, even in a marriage, to to find some security for yourself if that marriage is not going to last. Mm-hmm. And to be in denial about that or to be thinking wishfully that, you know, it's forever and what it isn't or it may not yeah. be. And oftentimes I think people know it, but they don't want to know it and they don't take steps soon enough. And by steps, I mean, I know that I read in your uh, book um, about, you know, having a sort of a, a, a fund or a, you know, separate I will say to you that if you're doing that during a marriage, that money is still marital property. But it, but but certainly at least to have something in your own account to that to, you need if you need to get out of a bad situation or whatever you need, that's a good idea. But I really am talking more about some kind of training, mm-hmm. um, some kind of work, even volunteer work yep. experience, yep. Um, building a network. Um, I think I mentioned earlier to you both in both careers, yeah. it was a network of people that helped me um, in both start a law yeah. practice yeah. and also um, start my own business when I left retailing um, to, to be essentially a wholesaler. So, I advise women to please, 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 and do something you know. That's my first bit of advice. Go with something you know. Don't don't try. You know, if you if you if your interests for your life have been art and theater and music, don't decide to be a rocket scientist. And you know, unless you have such an aptitude that was undiscovered then by all means but again stay with what you know or what you're interested in and build something for yourself Pat I cannot agree with you more and I want to use the example of a client that um, we helped through the divorce process and it's starting to finalize and I am so proud of her so she put her career on hold taking care of her Mm -hmm. children um, but started to put her resume together and she did exactly what you just said she sent out an email to all of her contacts. And I know it was all because it was myself, it was my team. But she listed, these are the companies that I would love to work for. Mm-hmm. And she listed all the different um, nonprofits. And I met with her the next week. And I said, how did that go? And she had, no joking, five interviews. This is a woman who's been out of the workforce. But again, she just reached out and said, if you know anyone at this right. nonprofit, this, and she had a list of 20, this is the type of role that I would like, but I'm willing to start at X. And there you go. It's so much of what you say. People forget that there are financial assets, but your contacts 
and your experience is also a huge asset. And that's something that women can have in spades still if they're not active in their current career, keeping those things up by, you know, even being part of the PTA. Wow, you learn a ton. I was the treasurer and I know QuickBooks inside, outside, backwards, forward, and it actually really helped me. Um, so knock on wood, I mean, there's so much that you can learn. And if I wanted to become a bookkeeper, I could, not that I want to, but I could. So that, those experiences are amazing. Um, you brought something up that I wanna make sure we get to because the time is going so fast. Um, as far as money, how it relates to child custody. Mm. Um, it's a little bit of a taboo topic, but I would love to hear from you. There's so much debate and controversy of, you know, do I have them 51%? Do I have them 49%? Um, what would you say? What so, would you say, Pat? So here's here's the law in New York, and, and of course, People use this strategically, obviously, to their own advantage, which you'll figure out quickly. So, it, New York's New York subscribes to what's called the Child Support Standards Act. So it's a formula. We already mentioned the cap is 148,000, but there are again factors to go over the cap for support. One of which is the standard of living during the marriage. Mm -hmm. So. There is no um, relation in that statute, statute being a codified law or formula really, to the amount of time the children are with you. It simply is custodial parent. New York case law has interpreted this to mean that um, there's no relation to time, but if it's equal time to the two parents, the parent who makes less money will be deemed the custodial parent for child support purposes and the parent that makes more money will have to pay child support in accordance with this formula. And the original case, which is Bast v. Rosoff, um, I think if I recall correctly, the incomes involved were not even the ones we've been talking about. They were like, 50,000 and 70,000. They were definitely, um, you know, smaller and smaller closer. incomes. Yeah. And so that's the law. So what happens is that if the incomes are close or sort of equal, and there's a 50 50 custody agreement, um, it means nobody's getting child support. And if you are the let's say you're the primary caretaker and you're the wife or mother, um, if someone is using this sort of custody to try and not pay child support, um, that's a big problem. And there's uh, further problems with it. As many times as I have wanted to in court say, this isn't a joke, this is only being done so that he doesn't have to pay her child support. The minute those words come out of my mouth, I'm condemned, condemned by the court. What do you mean, counsel? That's not true. Blah, blah, blah. How dare you say this? And of course, his lawyer is jumping all over the place. So we can't say that. We might be able to prove that, but how would we prove it? It's forcing custody litigation. So it is a strategy that's used, frankly, to avoid paying child support. So that's number one. If there's, let's say the 
father is now earning more money, so he's going to pay support to the mother. Well, the other way they sort of chisel away at it, because the, the thinking is, I'll pay for whatever I, I have to pay for my kids, but I don't want to basically give her a penny. That's somewhat the thinking. So what they'll do is they'll start with, uh, I'll pay 100% of the private school, I'll pay 100% of the extracurricular activities, I'll pay this. But by doing that, they're whittling down the amount of basic support that's going to the mother. And what doesn't get talked about enough is how much money she really needs to live. Mm-hmm. You know, to, for the to, extra bedroom, for the extra exactly. groceries, extra clothing, the things that aren't being covered. So what he'll say is, well, I have those expenses too. But if we look at the statistics as your books point out or your survey and studies point out, men tend to fare better after divorce than women do. Their incomes tend to go up. Yes. And so women's incomes, not necessarily so. Um, and so, but we, we're, we're kind of boxed into this trap and suggesting, you know, otherwise, suggesting essentially more money for rent or food or whatever becomes um, difficult. Yeah. A difficult argument to make, although... I do believe an extremely valid and important argument. I'm yeah. making it actually now in a case where you know he's going to pay for everything, and 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 of course the other lawyer said, "Well, he's paying for everything." I said, "But she has to pay to live. What are you talking about? Yeah, how yeah. can she live? She can't eat the tuition check. No, for school. No, or the soccer. Yeah, I I've seen this happen in a previous case where dad who works on Wall Street as an analyst, an investment banking analyst, getting home at 10 o'clock at night um, and traveling, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. uh, wants 50-50. And what ends up happening, if he gets granted that, and of course, child support um, amount payable is is reduced if, if there is any, all of a sudden, he's calling her up saying, I'm gonna be out of town next week um you know i can either drop them off at at your house or i can have our nanny live with them for that week now what is she going to say she's going to say of course no 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 have them come to our house so i've seen that too where um it's actually not he's not holding up his end of the bargain of actually having those children half the time and any good mom is you know gonna say hey bring them on over right bring them on over and of course she's incurring the cost of then the food that week and the you know you know all those things all those things there are when you suspect that that might be what's going to happen um, there are ways to um, really argue for essentially more money but generally the the increase in money is with child care which is not what you've mentioned food yeah. and and the other you know car fare and whatever else um, is is necessary just for the children to to live an extra week it 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 is manipulated and used to avoid paying direct child support to specifically women I read in an article um, to ask this question to hopefully get a better result of do you hate your spouse more than you love your children? 
<laughs> to try and help them get a you know their head on straight that you know what if you love your children screw it pay what you need to pay because she needs that it's not like it's going to go towards you know typically frivolous it's often it's just like getting the basics and uh again you know do you hate your spouse more than you you love your children um we're coming to a close i want to hear from you i know this went it goes so fast any last minute things you would want to share with women who are starting this journey um about anything that we've talked about already, or if there's something else that you want to make sure that we we talk a little bit about? I think be, be true to yourself and don't, um, y- you have a second act in you and you have a, mm-hmm. you have a second, um, you have a second life. And if the one you're in is unhappy, um, for whatever reasons, um, then then you need to be thinking about that second act. And I, a lawyer that I met years ago said to me, lovely woman, and she, she worked for a not-for-profit, and, and she just simply said, everyone has a right to be happy. Mm-hmm. And so I would say, if that is, if you are not happy, then you have a right to be happy, but start thinking about your second act, not just in terms of custody of your children, but also in terms of your financial and and really your career future. Be thinking yeah. about that. Yeah. What do you want to do? If you yeah. have to go back to your childhood and think about what you liked to do and and, and build something based on that. Yeah. And I have to tell you, if you love what you do, typically you're really good at it too. Right. That so is you're, true. I mean, Pat, you're so, you're right. And I can tell that you love what you do and you're very good at what you do. Well, thank um, you. I, I do love what I do. I yeah. love working with, with people and, and there's a particular joy to, that sounds terrible. There's not, <laughs> there's not a joy to working with people in trouble. Um, because they're in trouble. Yeah. There is a joy to taking people through a process from beginning to middle to end with a hope, and mm-hmm. I do always have this hope, that I, I tell them, I hope you never have to see me again, mm-hmm. except to let me know something good about your life, which I want to hear, and that they are moving forward in a really positive way. Yeah. So well, thank you, and thank you. How can um, our listeners find out more about you? Maybe your website and any other information you want to share. We we do have a website, which I think is pffamilylaw.com. I I should have looked. And don't worry, you know what we'll do? We'll put it in the show notes so people can actually click right on the link. Thank you. So we'll do that, and then we have the the link right there. Or call me. All my information is on the website, including my cell phone. So so that's nice. Wow. That's imp- wow, well, your cell phone. Because I have learned that number one, I'd rather be available if someone's in trouble and they need help. That's the first reason. The second reason is, is that I've I've learned no one really takes advantage of that. It's interesting. I, I know most lawyers. Oh, I'm not putting myself yeah, on. Yeah. No one has ever taken advantage of it. We have pretty amazing clients, then. Yes, I do. I yeah. do. 
Well, thank you for being here, Pat. And thank you for everyone listening in to Financially Ever After. Please do visit our show notes so that you get all the information. We're going to be including uh, a link to Pat's website. We'll also be including some links. Um, We'll be including some links to the child support guidelines of New York State here that we spoke about. Also, um, some of the guidelines, particularly for spousal support, including the CAP, so that you can start to get educated. Um, We'll make sure that we also put a link for um, all of the different uh, qualifying, all the different considerations that are taken into account for whether or not that cap is raised, um, as well as what really is considered for spousal support and what that number looks like. So we'll have all of that. And again, most importantly, starting to get educated and, you know, knowing both the good things that can happen, but also, as Pat shared, things that you need to be careful about, um, particularly with spousal support and as we talked about with child custody. So thank you again for being here, Pat, and thank you to all of you listening to Financially Ever After, and we'll see you in two weeks.